Hello you filthy animals and welcome back to the old metal bar steward brought to you by 25 years later media and the ruminations radio network. I am your host the old metal bar steward himself Neil Gray and this week before we get into the news views and opinions that I have I'd like to talk about Guns N' Roses. There was a time when Guns N' Roses were the most important rock band in the world before the bloated 13 minute songs before the riots and the axles no-shows, before the self-indulgent double album release and the 16 years of waiting for their follow-up, GNR stood astride the music world like a colossus, and for a few glorious moments they proved that rock was far from dead. That time was 1987, and music was at an all-time low. Without the likes of Maiden or Motorhead, there was hardly anything worth listening to. All the bands that were being discovered weren't worth the vinyl they were being printed on. Outside of Motley Crue and Hanoi Rocks, everything else was just a mass of teased hair and power ballads. Or songs about stealing the keys to your daddy's car and heading to the beach to check out the chicks. Which, for a 15-year-old me based in the UK, was about as likely to happen as a night out with Sam Fox. If the scene wasn't dead, it sure as hell was on life support just waiting for someone to pull the plug, when all of a sudden... Rumours started spreading on this new band out of LA called Guns N' Roses. Thanks to the British rock bibles, Metal Hammer and Kerrang, a buzz started to grow around their EP, Live Like a Suicide. But this was England in the late 1980s. And unless you lived in a big city, then the chances of finding a copy on import was rarer than unicorn shit. I lived in the ass end of nowhere. Yet for a friend of a friend of a friend kind of deal, I managed to lay my hands on a taped version. It must have been the 13th copy of a 13th copy, and it was of such low quality that I had to have my stereo cranked up 11 just to hear it, but it didn't matter one bit. From the first time I heard, hey fuckers, fucking guns and fucking roses, I was hooked. Reckless life, nice boys, moved to the city, mammakin, there wasn't a bad track on the entire thing, and it was played with such a passion and a fury, I thought it was going to rip the speakers off of my walls. I was converted to their cause and I devoured every piece of information I could find on the band. When Appetite for Destruction was released, I was down at the local record store at 9am for their opening time to pick up my pre-order copy. It was fucking glorious. If Live Like a Suicide had been a taster of what Guns N' Roses had to offer, then the debut album was a full-blown banquet with as much food as you could eat and as much JD as you could throw down your neck. In fact, nearly 34 years later, it still stands up as one of the greatest records of all time. There's only Sweet Child of Mine that hasn't aged very well. This has more to do with it being played to death than there actually being anything wrong with the bloody track. But it wasn't just a rip-roaring rock and roll that made this ragtag bunch of misfits such an attractive proposition for teenagers the world over, who were just looking for bigger ways to piss their parents off. They looked the part as well. Where a few months previous, I'd been mocked for showing up at school wearing a cut-off denim jacket, a band t-shirt, a pair of jeans and some trainers. When appetite took off, you couldn't move without barging away past probably half a dozen axle clones, bandana and all. We even had one guy dressed like Slash, including Top Hat, but that lasted about a week before his folks caught on and gave him an ass-whooping that changed his mind about his recent fashion choices. We didn't care about the poses, though. No matter how much they tried to dress like us, no matter how much they decided we were now cool enough to talk to, we knew that to be part of the life, you had to live the life. 
and with the exception of Lemmy, nobody embodied that more in our young minds than Guns N' Roses. If you've read any of the three autobiographies available to you, then you'll know that not only did the band live life to the ultimate debauched extremes, but it's a fucking miracle they all survived. They snorted, shot up and drank everything they could lay their hands on, and it took a heavy toll. Slash has overdosed so often that he's probably got a loyalty card to every hospital in America. Duff drank so much that his goddamn pancreas exploded. And Stephen Adler stuck so much shit into his system, he suffered a stroke. He was 31 years old. Izzy and Axel didn't get off lightly either, with the former spending many years battling a heroin addiction that would have ended other mortals in around a third of the time, while Axel was a walking rattle of pills used to combat his manic depressive disorder. Yet, at least for a few glorious years, they were a gang who always had each other's backs. They'd fight like cats and dogs, but they'd always sort it out in-house, and the next day it'd be like nothing ever happened. After all, this was a band who formed and then thought, fuck it, if we're going to play some shows, we might as well go on tour. And that's exactly what they did. With no album, no fan base, and no one having a clue who the fuck they were, Guns N' Roses booked a series of shows and hit the road which would have been great if the car they were using hadn't broken down just outside of LA. Now, most other bands would have said screw it, turned around and gone home, but not Guns N' Roses. Instead, they chose to head for the final show they had booked, blowing off every other gig they had planned, and hitchhiked all the way to Seattle. Even then, things didn't go swimmingly. After the gig, the club's owner refused to pay them, and it was only when he was threatened with serious violence did he cough up the kingly sum of a hundred bucks, which the band then proceeded to blow and get him wasted. When they initially started out writing this script, it was going to be filled with stories of their exploits during this period of their career. But as I went along, I realised, well, that wouldn't work. First off, if I was just regurgitating all the tales from the tour bus that are easily available elsewhere, then that would make me nothing more than a fucking hack. Secondly, I don't have enough time and space to do that anyway as it's taken Slash, Duff and Stephen Adler three whole tomes to attempt to recount their tales and I still suspect there's about a library's worth of content left out there. And thirdly, Guns N' Roses meant a lot more to me than five Hellraisers who made some cracking music. Don't get me wrong, I've always had a soft spot for people who can trash hotel rooms while drunk out of their mind, but for a then 15-year-old lad who was trying to find his way in the world, they were another piece in the puzzle that was growing up. More importantly, they were mine. You see, I was far too young to be there when Murhead started out, and I was a couple of years off of both Hanoi Rocks and Motley Crew. This meant the Guns N' Roses were the first band I could ever say I got in with on the ground floor, and it was fucking glorious. So I can forgive all the bullshit that dogged them in the later years, because as far as I'm concerned, they'll always be the band that gave me a reason to believe that not all new music sucked balls, and that rock and roll was far from dead. So now it's time for the news. This year's Grammys have been and gone, and whereas I usually couldn't give a damn about any award show, I was more than happy to see Body Count pick up the best metal performance with the song Bum Rush. I've been a fan of Body Count since I first heard Cop Killer back in 92, and personally, I think they should have won it in 2017 for No Life's Matter, but better late than never as far as I'm concerned. Sadly, it doesn't seem that everyone feels the same way. Once again, the idiot hate mob have used this moment to spit their bile all over the internet. And though I have zero interest in giving these fucking morons any form of platform, I feel I should address my favourite dumbass conspiracy theory. That the only reason a band won it was because of the colour of their skin. 
and that the Grammys bowed down to pressure in the current climate. Now, if you're one of these dumb fucks that thinks this, you're a racist asshole and I pray to God you never breed. Do you want to know the real reason the body count won? Lean in close and I'll tell you. It's because Bum Rush was the best fucking song of 2020, you fucking schmucks. So take your fucking KKK membership and get the fuck away from my show. There is no room for you here. In other idiots news, it seems that Iced Earth's John Schaefer has been moved to an undisclosed location as he awaits trial. Now, for any of you that have been living in a cave on Mars with your fingers in your ears, yelling la 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 at the top of your lungs for the past few months, then you might have missed how a former US president incited a whole host of redneck cross-burning dildos to invade the state capitol and try to overthrow the government. This went about as well as you can imagine, and many, many people were arrested, including Iced Earth's rhythm guitarist, principal songwriter, and closet racist John Schaefer. Now, I call him a closet racist, because it seems that the rest of the band had no fucking idea what he was about to do. And everyone else has since quit. I feel bad for those guys, as you know how the internet is. They'll always be guilty by association, just like the Lost Prophets. And they had fuck all to do with it. But shit sticks, and the internet likes nothing better than throwing around as much feces as it can lay its hands on. As for Schaefer, he's looking at a very long term behind bars if he's found guilty and considering everything he's on the hook for, as far as your old metal bar steward is concerned, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Back to the Grammys now, and it seems that not everything at this year's performance was as great as Body Count's win. During the In Memoriam section, Eddie Van Halen was afforded 15 seconds, while four others that passed were given full performances. This is so fucking disrespectful that I don't even know where to begin. Eddie Van Halen changed the face of guitar playing, and you're telling me that in a three fucking hour show, the best they could offer was a small clip of him playing Eruption. And with Eddie Trunk on this, they had months to prepare, so there is no excuse for such a shoddy farewell to a guy who had the same effect on how people approach the six strings as Jimi Hendrix. Fair enough, even his son said that nobody could have done his old man justice on the guitar, and he should know, having turned down the opportunity to play at the show, but that doesn't mean they couldn't have come up with something, any fucking thing, to show the proper respect for a man who was adored by millions and influenced just as many. Guess a message here is, if you're a famous rock or metal musician and you die, the Grammys just won't give a fuck about you. Bill Ward has popped up again, talking about how he'd like to do one more record with Black Sabbath. Now this isn't something that Ward's been quiet on over the years, happily telling anyone who'll listen that he feels he has unfinished business with the band and it's easy to see why. Ward was the pounding heart of Sabbath on so many fantastic records that whenever someone else sat behind the kit, it didn't feel the same. But the problem is that he hasn't been with them since a contractual dispute in 2012. And considering the end tour happened in 2017, it seems a bit of a stretch of the imagination to think that the classic Sabbath lineup will ever happen again. Ozzy's health isn't the best, and any contract trouble would have undoubtedly been to clashing heads with Sharon. And as we all know, she doesn't forgive or forget in these circumstances. So I feel Bill Ward's dream of one more album is of pipe more than reality. But as Geezer Butler once said, if it came up, I wouldn't say never. And talking of the Geezer Geezer, it's been announced that one of the most underrated bass players of all time is writing his autobiography. He said he got the idea after his parents passed away, as no matter how close they were, 
he never really knew that much about them outside of them being his mum and dad. And he wishes that he had taken the time to ask them a load of questions about their past. So, with the plan being to leave a testimonial of his life for his grandchildren to have, he started on his story. Hopefully, they won't be allowed to even look at it until they're old enough to understand that Grandpa Butler was a full-on maniac in a band of full-on maniacs. But that doesn't mean the rest of us shouldn't be salivating at the prospect of getting our grubby hands on a copy as soon as it's hot off the press. Black Sabbath arguably invented heavy metal, and the story of their epic rise, catastrophic fall, and triumphant return from the ashes is going to make for a cracking read. Adds into the mix that they snorted, drank, and shot up everything they could, and Geezer Butler's book should be a number one bestseller around the world. Now, if you joined me for the news section last week, you'll know I ragged on Gene Simmons for being an idiot. But in a change of pace, today I'd like to praise Paul Stanley for having the kind of self-awareness I'd never really credited any member of KISS having. During an interview with USA Today, the star child was asked if there would be any new music from the band and he said that he didn't really see the point. He said, and I quote, it's odd to me that people always want you to do a new album, but then they go, that's great, now play your hits. This is something that's been a personal bugbear for me for years. Music fans can be a fickle bunch at times, and will demand that bands that they have followed religiously put out a new product whenever they ask for it. Then they show up to watch them live and expect them to knock out the classics like a fucking jukebox. I've always been at a school of thought that states if you're with a band, then you're with them for life, through thick and thin, through classic album and shite. And if they put out a new record before they tour, then you better be prepared to hear a large chunk of it when they head out on the road. If you've got no interest in that, then don't buy a fucking ticket. Other people have always thought that I'm a crazy person who should keep his mouth shut, lest my madness infect them. So it's nice to see me vindicated in a way by Paul Stanley's remarks which is something I thought I'd never say. Max Cavalera is back with a new project and it's fucking brutal. Along with his brother Igor and drummer Zach Coleman, he's formed Go Ahead and Die, and their first single, Truckload Full of Bodies, is now available on YouTube. For any of you filthy animals that might not have heard it yet, I'll tell you this, it doesn't fuck a bank. It is so unbelievably heavy that I thought my laptop was going to break through the table and crash through the floor the second I hit play. It's so goddamn thrash that I got whiplash without even moving. I cannot praise this track enough. It's a glorious mix of genres and in my opinion is the nastiest and the most metal thing he's been involved with since the early Sepultura albums. Until this morning, I didn't realise that I needed Go Ahead and Die in my life, but from now until June the 11th, when I can get hold of the self-titled debut on Nuclear Blast, I'll be counting down the days and playing truckload full of bodies so loudly that I fully expect my neighbours to go deaf within a week. And finally, more from Corey Taylor this week, and you've just got to love this bloke. In a new interview with Rolling Stone, he's taken aim at the cancel culture and he doesn't hold back. Now I'm just going to read you the full quote so you can hear for yourself what the neck had to say, and I quote, no one can handle anything anymore, which means no one can handle real talk anymore, which means everyone just wants to cancel shit with no room for improvement. There are several people at fault for this. The right, the left, the media, celebrities, the internet, social media. But if you're truly looking for who's responsible, or more importantly, irresponsible, you should probably find the nearest mirror. I'm not saying there aren't things that deserve our attention, 
I'm not saying that things shouldn't change in so many different ways. I'm not even going to tell you that you have no right to be passionate on social change. What I'm saying is pick your spots. Know what the hell's going on before you go chasing after people with pitchforks for no fucking reason whatsoever. There's so much to be done on so many different things. You don't have to protest everything that someone tries to hoist up a pole as a red flag. Be a little smarter in how you swing the hammer, because when everything is a problem, that means everyone is a suspect, including yourselves. People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Nobody's perfect. Stop acting like we all should be. And you know what? He's fucking right. I hate this cancer culture bullshit. I hate the fact that a bunch of keyboard warriors have decided that they are going to police everyone, and you damn well better conform to their ideal of what's right or wrong, or you're going to be sorry, yes sirree, Bob. They're like Ned Flanders when he gets control of all of the CCTV cameras in Springfield and forces everyone to behave just the way he wants them to. They're like SpongeBob when he decides to become normal, except they're not fucking funny. What they are is fucking dangerous as they take away any chance of discussion because they're offended by what one single person has said. And if they're offended, then we all should be. You can't fucking educate people by taking away the right to debate. That's not how it fucking works. You need discourse. You need to be able to say, hey man, you are so fucking wrong here, and here's why. What you don't need is a group of perma-offended woke twats telling you who can speak up and who should sit on the fucking naughty step and be quiet. The internet is supposed to be a place of wonder and learning, but instead, it's just full of people either being racist or yelling about how much more woke they are compared to everyone else. And that is why, outside of the official Old Metal Bar Stewart Twitter account, cheap plug, you won't find me on social media anywhere. To paraphrase the comedian Kevin Bridges, if social media was a bar, you'd pop your head in, take a look around and say, nah, this place is full of assholes, should we go somewhere else? So there it is. Another week, another episode of The Old Metal Bar Steward. I've been your host, The Old Metal Bar Steward himself, Neil Gray. And as always, I'd like to thank you for listening to the show. Brought to you by 25 Years Later Media and the Ruminations Radio Network. And you all know the drill by now. When you turn off my dulcet tones, head on over to the main 25 Years Later site, as well as its sister sites, Horror Obsessive and Sports Obsessive, and get your eyeballs some top-notch reading. And don't forget to check out the other podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network, as they've got you covered no matter what your ear holes are craving. Anyway, I'll be back here in seven days' time with more news, reviews, opinions, and tales of my sordid past. So until then, stay safe and stay metal, you filthy animals. <laughs>